0: Now, as we move into our sermon, we are on uh, episode 14 of The Plan, which puts us in 1 Samuel. Uh, we started with Genesis in September, and we're working toward hitting the resurrection on Easter. We want to tell the st- whole story of the Bible this year, which means that during Christmas, during the Advent Christmas season, we're in kind of a weird place. We're in an unusual place for this time of year in 1 Samuel, and... Um, The story that we have been telling, the way we've been connecting the story of the Bible together is that the Bible is the story of God's plan to establish a place full of people who live out their purpose in his presence. God made the world, he put people in it, he told them to rule it on his behalf, and then he came down to live with them. And we messed it up. But ever since, God has been working to reestablish that design. That is the design God has in mind for us. It's what we were created for. It's what we are called into. And so we're talking about this story because it's important for us to know the story that we are meant to be living out as Christians and also the story that we're inviting others into as we share our faith. Because that is what we're doing when we tell people about Jesus is we're inviting them to become part of this story of what God is doing in the world. Now, at this particular stage that we're at in the story, God is working to reestablish his plan by focusing on one specific group of people out of all of the people, uh, his chosen people, Israel. And he's given them a particular place to live, and he has come down to live with them in that place, and he's given them the Law of Moses— as, so that if they live out the law of Moses, living that out will demonstrate who God is to the, to the people. So that the other nations around them would be, are supposed to be able to look to Israel and understand who their God is and what he wants for humanity. And this is how God reveals himself to the world, is through the way his people live out his plan. Now, two weeks ago, we were in Judges, and we saw that that this plan is not working particularly well, and and that is because of the failure of Israel to hold up their end. It started with the fact that they didn't follow through on God's command to drive out the uh, the, um, Canaanites, And so the Canaanite influence stayed with them and tempted them to start worshiping God in other ways and then to start worshiping other gods, and eventually it corrupted them to the point where you couldn't really tell the difference between Israelites and Canaanites and and their neighbors, and they didn't actually look any different. They were just as violent, just as destructive, uh, and things are just horrible at the end of Judges. And so if their purpose is to reveal God to the world, and you look at the end of Judges, you don't really see God revealed through what they're doing. And that's a significant problem. Now, last week, we were in the book of Ruth, and we saw a glimmer of hope through this Moabite woman who actually behave the way God calls us to behave. And we saw something kind of begin with her and their family that we know is going to bear fruit later on. But as we return to the major main story and First Samuel, we're still back in that place where Israel is just really doing a very poor job of representing God to the world. However, at the beginning of First Samuel, something changes. There is a miraculous baby boy born to a woman you would not expect to be able to conceive. Uh, not that miraculous baby boy. Uh, at the beginning, First Samuel opens with a, a woman who is uh, unable to have children, begging God in the tabernacle to give her a child. And she says that if he gives her children, then the, first, the very first child will be dedicated to him. And God hears her and has compassion on her, and he gives her children. And the first one is Samuel, and she follows through on her word. She dedicates him to God and, and brings him to the tabernacle, and he begins living and working in the tabernacle. And, and he begins hearing from God. And so as we go into our, our coordinates passage, is what I'm calling our, our opening passages when we do the plan— that's the stage that we're at is this, this new thing that God is doing that seems to be centered around this uh, young man named Samuel. So as we go into this passage, I want you to remember these are our our bear- this is how we keep our bearings in a story. Be keeping in mind who is the story about? Where is their home? How can they meet with God? And what did God tell them to do? Those are the four coordinates that keep us um, help us keep our bearings in a story. Now, uh, <laughs> In your bulletin, I got this passage completely wrong. It is not 1 Samuel 4, 1 through 1. It's it's, uh, 319 through 4, 3, if you want to correct that, the kind who will want to know that, uh, 319 through 4, 3. Here's the story, how it begins. The Lord was with Samuel as he grew up, and he let none of Samuel's words fall to the ground. And all of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, recognized that Samuel was attested as a prophet of the Lord. The Lord continued to appear at Shiloh, and there he revealed himself to Samuel through his word. And Samuel's word came to all Israel. Now the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines. The Israelites camped at Ebenezer and the Philistines at Aphek. The Philistines deployed their forces to meet Israel, and as the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 of them on the battlefield. When the soldiers returned to the camp, the elders of Israel asked, Why did the Lord bring defeat on us today? before the Philistines. We're going to pause there, and we're going to get our bearings. Okay, so first of all, who's the story about? It's about Samuel and the Israelites. Now, when we were in Judges, there wasn't really a main leader of Israel. There were a bunch of judges that would come through, but they tended to be temporary political leaders. There's really only one judge who actually spoke for God, uh, Deborah was the only one who was also a prophet and actually spoke for God to the Israelites. The rest of them tended to be just military leaders and and, and pretty poor representatives of God in a lot of ways. Uh, so it's been a while since there's been someone who could really firmly lead them back to God. And so the fact that everybody in Israel recognizes that Samuel speaks for God is a big deal. It's kind of a turning point in the story that, that God is speaking reliably through a particular person, and that, per, that person then should be, you know, listened to if we're meant to be following God. Where is their home? Well, their home is the land of Israel, and but the land of Israel is going through a particular challenge right now because they, it has been invaded by the Philistines. The Philistines are not regular, uh, regular enemies in the Old Testament. See, in the book of Judges, until the Philistines arrive, everybody that attacks, they're kind of like nomadic travelers. They, they come in, they oppress them for a while, and they move on. Um, it's kind of like the Magnificent Seven kind of story, like they come through, they oppress, and they leave, that kind of thing. The Philistines are actually a group of Greeks who came down from down the Mediterranean and landed on the beaches and started building cities, and they are there to stay. And they also are very uh, technologically advanced. They cannot be beaten on level ground because they have chariots, which are new in that region. So the Philistines are a significant threat to the land of Israel. This is, things have gotten serious now. Now, how can they meet with God? Now, this answer hasn't changed, but today we're going to need to be a bit more specific. They can meet with God in the tabernacle, which is currently in Shiloh. Okay? Now, but we need to be a little bit more specific about where in the tabernacle you meet with God. Because it's not just the tent. Right? When you take apart the tent and move it, God's presence moves with one item in the ark and, and or in the tent. Now I gave it away. It's the ark. Okay, it's the Ark. (laughs) You meet with God before the Ark, and that's why the most important moment of the year for Israelites is that moment when the high priest goes into the Holy of Holies and puts blood on the Ark of the Covenant. In fact, they'll they'll refer to God as enthroned above the cherubim. The cherubim are angels that look like sphinxes, and there are two of those on top of the Ark. So the idea was that God's presence went over the Ark, and when they traveled with the Ark, that was God's presence. So... The point where you meet God's presence, if you're an Israelite and you want to go meet God, you go to the tabernacle, and it's the fact that the ark is there is what means God's at home, right? That's important, because the story that we're looking at today is a story that we, that, uh, we, often, we often don't recognize the significance of what happens here, okay? But that's specifically how they meet with God. Now, the question is, what are they meant to be doing, Technically, at this point, what has God told them to do? Well, he's actually given them about 613 things to do in the law of Moses. Uh, and, but in particular moments, you will, there are certain parts of the law that are especially relevant, right? So they went into battle, and they lost. And if we all had Deuteronomy memorized, we might be reminded at that moment to go back to Deuteronomy 11, where God says... Uh, Moses says, If you carefully observe all these commands I'm giving you to follow, to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, and to hold fast to him, then the Lord will drive out all these nations before you, and you will dispossess nations larger and stronger than you. So what is the key to military victory according to the law of Moses? It is to observe the commands, to love God, to walk in obedience with him, to hold fast to him. I'm going to summarize that with the phrase, uh, Be faithful to God. Right, That kind of summarizes the, all the different aspects of what's going on there. So if, if God says, be faithful to me and I will give you victory in battle, and they lose the battle, what should the assumption then be? Or what should at least be the first kind of thing that crosses your mind? Right, Maybe they haven't been faithful to God. How are they going to find out where the problem is? There actually is a significant problem. If you've been reading all of Samuel to up to this point, you'll know that the guys who run the tabernacle have been embezzling funds and sleeping with their secretaries. Like it's, it's the ancient version of that. Like the more things change, the more they stay the same. So the problem is that even the people in the tabernacle are corrupt now. Like the corruption has reached every single part of Israelite society. So there is a reason why this is happening now, right? But how do they find out? How are they supposed to know? Well, they've they've got access to the Word of God, right? We just we just read that there is a person in Israel that everybody recognizes God is speaking to, right? And so they have a way to ask God. So what they need to do, if they want to know what God is telling them to do or where they've messed up, listen to Samuel. Go ask Samuel, right? When they when they um when they lost the battle in Joshua, in the book of Joshua. The leader, the prophet at the time, Joshua, went before the Ark of the Covenant and stayed there for like a day waiting for God to tell them what they had done wrong. And uh, they could have easily followed that example. That would be the logical thing to do, right? Is to find out how you've been unfaithful or whether you've been unfaithful. There might be another reason and remedy that situation. But if you're going to be faithful to God, then you need to hear from God. Or, you know, So that seems like the logical thing that they should be doing at this point in the story. So what do they actually do? Well, I'm going to read that same last verse again, and I'm going to finish it, because I want you to notice how much time they spend deciding what they're going to do. When the soldiers returned to camp, the elders asked, why did the Lord bring defeat on us today before the Israelites? Let us bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh, so that he may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. How long do they spend actually reflecting on what the problem might be? Do they actually even try to find out what the problem is? No, they jump straight to a solution. And, and you know, this might, be, this might be them trying to follow the example of Joshua, just the wrong example of Joshua, because they're looking at the story of Jericho when they brought the ark and they yelled really loud and the walls came tumbling down. So they're thinking, well, maybe we just need to ad- adopt the right tactics so they, they decide to bring the ark, and so the people, they, uh, the people sent men to Shiloh, who walked right past Samuel, to, and brought the ark of the covenant of the Lord Almighty, who was enthroned between the cherubim, and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. So what's going on here? What's going on is that it does not occur to them that they might be on the wrong track, it does not occur to them that God may not want them to win under these circumstances, that there might be something that needs to change. They don't actually think to ask God's, God's will. The Israelites assumed that they were on the right track, and they used the ark to try to force a victory. It's possible, if they're, re- if they're thinking about God the way they, the other nations thought about their gods. They might have thought that God just missed the battle, that he wasn't paying close enough attention, and they need to make sure that he's paying attention the next time they go into battle. It's also possible if we were to think, you know, maybe the most negative assumption about their motivation is that they're they're trying to corner God into winning for them because they're basically gambling with the ark. Like They're putting the Ark in jeopardy, so now if God wants to preserve his Ark and preserve his plan, he needs to protect, he's, he'll need to defeat the Philistines. But however it is, they think that if we take the Ark and we bring it with us into battle because it carries the presence of God, then we'll win. We just need a better tactic. How do we think that's going to work out for them? Well, let's see. The Philistines fought, and the Israelites were defeated, and every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers, 4,000 the first time. Now it's 30,000. The ark of God was captured, and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Okay, now when you read this story, keeping in mind the coordinates of the plan, you realize that this is a really, really big deal. Okay. So the Israelites lost the battle, which is bad, but they also lost the ark. And what did they lose when they lost the ark? They lost the presence of God. In fact, there's a messenger who goes back to Eli, the high priest, and tells him, we lost the battle. Doesn't get a reaction. Both of your sons died. Doesn't get a reaction. They captured the ark. Eli, out of shock, falls out of his chair, breaks his neck, and dies right? That's how serious this is. They say that the glory of God departed Israel and went into exile. This is a huge deal because when the ark and the tabernacle are separated, the presence of God goes with the ark. And having access to the presence of God is a key part of the plan. And so they have gambled with the presence of God, and God has called their bluff and they, they lost not only the battle, but also the ark. This is a huge deal for their identity and also for their mission, and for the whole plan, uh, uh, the whole plan of the Bible. This is a, a common thing that happens in the Bible that uh, scholars would call covenant jeopardy. Something's happened that puts the whole plan, at least from a human perspective, in jeopardy, because, because human beings did something wrong. They made a bad choice. Now I like to imagine, like, what are the Israelites thinking after they regroup? Like obviously they're devastated, but I, I like to wonder, maybe there were some like some Israelite commandos like ready to put on some kind of, put together a strike force that was going to go back and, and take capture the ark back and deliver them. And they're, they're trying to figure out all these strategies. How are we going to liberate the ark and defeat the Philistines? And, and then one day, they're harvesting at a town called Beth Shemesh, and this wagon just appears over the hillside, with nobody driving it, and they go up to the wagon, and in the back of the wagon is the Ark of the Covenant and a bunch of crates full of gold. It just shows up over the hill one day because something interesting happened among the Philistines. So they, the Philistines took the Ark and they put it in, a, in, in the temple of Dagon, um, their god, in one of their towns, and the next morning the, temp, the, the idol had fallen over. They think, that's that's a little odd, so they stand it back up, and then the next morning, it's fallen over, and it's shattered, and then all of a sudden, people in town start dying. So they get a little worried, and they take the ark, and they move it to another town, and people start dying, and so after a while, the people there get upset, and they move it to a third town, and as they're moving to the third town, the third town's going, no, 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 we do not want the ark. Turn around, We, we don't want it. So they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and said, send the ark of the God of Israel away. Let it go back to its own place or it will kill us and our people. For death had filled the city with panic. God's hand was very heavy on it. So they have this meeting They say, what do we do? And their priests are like, well, I don't know. Let's put it on a cart. Let's load it up with gold to, to, to try and bribe him into not killing any more of us and just aim it at Israel and let him go. And it says that they like followed the wagon until it had crossed the border, like from a distance, until they crossed the border, and then they got out of there, because they didn't want anything more to do with the ark. Now, this is kind, it's kind of a funny story, but it's, it's, I, I, a lot of the commentaries I was reading were talking about how odd this story is, and, and what's the point of it here. I think part of the point of it is, it's demonstrating to us that when that battle was lost, the Philistines defeated the Israelites, but they didn't defeat God. Because that would be the assumption, was that when two armies fight, the one that wins, their god also defeated the other god. That's why they took the ark and they put it in with their temple, was to show that, that Dagon had conquered Yahweh. So God makes it very clear that, no, no, you didn't defeat Israel, you, or you didn't defeat me, you defeated Israel. Because even without the Israelite army, God can take care of himself, and so this is the moment when God intervenes. Israel wanted to force him to intervene during the battle. And instead, he lets them lose the battle. And then he intervenes in among the Philistines. To take, he takes care of himself. So God intervened to force the Israelites to release the ark. And this is the first time that he really steps in. Okay? So the ark comes back to Israel. And here's where the story gets really interesting, because I always thought when I read this myself that that's where the story of the adventures of the ark kind of ended, right? That it came back to Israel, and now everything is hunky-dory. Everybody's reunited. It's great, okay? And, and, so, and even when I read the commentaries, it would say, yeah, so there's this little detour, this little distraction from the story of Samuel, and it just, just shows us that God's more powerful than Dagon, and that seems to be the only point. And then we're back, and everything's the same like we started. So you can kind of skip over this story. I'm going to argue that you can't skip over this story because this story is a key part to understanding what's going on in Israel from here until 1 Kings, until the next major change, because the story doesn't end hunky-dory. See, the the ark goes to Beth Shemesh, and the Levites, who are supposed to know how to handle the ark, they get it down, and, and in Beth Shemesh they have this big party, and it seems fine, But God struck down some of the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh, putting 70 of them to death because they looked into the ark of the Lord. The people mourned because of the heavy blow the Lord had dealt them. Somebody did not watch Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? You don't open the ark. More importantly, these are Israelites. They should know. Right? They should know how to handle the ark. They should know to handle it with respect. But what's happening here is, is it's revealing, this is when the Israelites suddenly realized that things are not back to normal between them and God. Because they gambled with the presence of God. Right? They, they, they gambled with it. They were willing to risk the ark to try and win a battle on their own terms. And they took God for granted. And that hasn't gone away. That hasn't been dealt with. And so the ark comes back and they're still treating it casually. They're still taking it for granted. And they realize things are not okay. The people of Beth Shemesh asked, who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? To whom will the ark go up from here? Like, what do we do? We are not on the same page with God, clearly. God's not okay with us and we don't know what to do. What's going on? Then the, uh, the people of Beth Shemesh asked, oh, sorry. Then they sent messengers to the people of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to your town. So the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord. The ark remained at Kiriath-Jerim a long time, 20 years in all. Now that is utterly fascinating that the ark ended up at Kiriath-Jerim. It is utterly fascinating for reasons that are not immediately clear. Here's the first reason. Sending it to Kiriath-Jerim means they did not reunite the ark with the tabernacle. The ark, or the tabernacle, last we saw it, was in Shiloh. Now, it's possible that Shiloh has been destroyed at this point. We know that Shiloh gets destroyed, and one of the leading theories is that when the Philistines captured the ark, they went and destroyed Shiloh. But the next place that the tabernacle ends up is in a town called Nob. We see that later in 1 Samuel. And when it's in Nob, the ark is still in Kiriath-Jerim. So they do not reunite the Ark with the tabernacle. And in fact, they won't reunite the Ark with the tabernacle. Um, uh, for a very long time, the Ark is going to be on its own. Okay? Now, why don't they send it back to the tabernacle? Well, I think there's a clue to that in the fact that they sent it to kiriath jiram instead. Anybody know anything, any interesting facts about Kiriath-Jerim? you remember in Joshua when we were talking about this tribe of Canaanites who made a deal with Joshua? Sorry, they, they, um, they tricked Joshua into signing a treaty with them thinking they weren't Canaanites, and that meant that he couldn't drive them out. And so instead he says, all right, you guys are going to have to be manual labor for the tabernacle forever. Okay, so they're not Israelites. They live in Israel. They're called the Gibeonites. Kiriath-Jerim is a Gibeonite, Gibeonite town. It is not an Israelite town. And when they put people in charge of taking care of the ark, they don't say they're priests. They just say they're caretakers. And in fact, there's going to be one more stop that the, that the uh, ark makes on the way to uh, Jerusalem eventually. Um, and that stop is also not going to be with an Israelite. It's going to be with a Philistine who lives in Israel. So actually, the ark, it's back in the land of Israel, but it is not back with the people of Israel. The Israelites essentially can't be trusted. So they realize like, I think the reason why they didn't send it back to the tabernacle is because Israel couldn't have it at all at this point. Because that relationship is still significantly fractured. So God did not restore the Ark to the Israelites. He left it in exile with the Gibeonites. They have not been brought back together because the problem that put the Ark at risk is still there. And it will continue to be there in some form for a long time until they have a, te- a temple to put at risk. And so God does not reunite with them. Now, why, is he not, why, why would God respond this way? I think oftentimes we will look at what God's doing and we will assume motivations or we will assume emotions or those, those kind of things. And sometimes we will assume um, negative ones or we'll assume distance, like God is, God is just fed up with them and he's giving up on them. But I think we should always assume that God knows the consequences of what he's doing. Right? And so, what are the consequences of God removing his, and not sending the ark back to the Israelites? Well, I'm going to reread, I only read you half of the last verse. I'm going to read you the whole verse, and you can see the immediate consequences of God not sending the ark back to the Israelites. The ark remained at Kiriath Jerim a long time, 20 years in all. Then all the people of Israel turned back to the Lord. What? (laughs) Like, that hasn't happened since, for generations. That they've actually really turned, They didn't happen in Judges. And all the attacks, all the oppression, all the opposite, all the stuff that happened in Judges did not create this effect. And yet they, they realize the ark's not coming back and they repent and they turn back to God. And it's sincere. They, they even go to Samuel as the person who speaks for God, and they, and they talk to him. And Samuel said to the Israelites, if you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the Asherahs and commit yourselves to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the Israelites put away their Baals and Asherahs and serve the Lord only. So this is real. This is real repentance. This is sincere repentance. They've turned back to God, and it's triggered by the realization that God is not just going to come back like everything's hunky-dory. Losing the presence of God finally drove the Israelites to true repentance. This is kind of like a a trial separation, right? When a spouse has been taking the other spouse for granted, and at a certain point there's a crisis that makes them realize what they've been taking for granted, right? That's what's happened here. And when they suddenly realize what they've lost, that, that the ark could be with, the ark isn't captured anymore, but it's God's decision that it's not with them, that jars them. That gets their attention, and that drives them to repent. And I think that we should assume God knew that was going to be their immediate reaction when we're looking at what, God, what motivated God to, to not send the ark back immediately. I think we can also get a sense of God's attitude towards the Israelites by how God responds when they repent. Because remember, it's been generations since the Israelites really were, were sincerely following God right? And they paid a lot of lip service to him in the cycle of the judges, but they never really turned to him. And so how, how would one of us respond in a situation like that, right? We might say, okay, sure, you're talking a good talk, but let's, let's give it some time. Let's see how things turn out before I, before I trust you again, before, you know, like there's, you could, ex- you could totally ex- expect a very lukewarm response from God, but that's not what happens, so they get together and they make these Samuels, leading them in sacrifice to repent to God. And while he was, Samuel was sacrificing the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to engage Israel in battle. But that day the Lord thundered with loud thunder against the Philistines and threw them into such a panic that they were routed before the Israelites. They repented and immediately God was there protecting them from the Philistines so when Israel turned back to God, he delivered them from the Philistines, which, remember, was exactly what they were trying to do at the beginning of the story, right? But it wasn't under the conditions God wanted to happen in, because if God defends them from the Philistines and gives them victories while they're completely disregarding him, he's validating that attitude and saying, yeah, they're doing good. He needs them to be faithful to him and turn to him. And the moment that happens, God is, God is at their side. He is defending them. He is take, he's taking care of them. He doesn't wait. He doesn't say, uh, let, me, let, me, let me get over my emotional you know, frustration. He is there with them immediately. And for a moment, for, for a time, we're going to see they are, they are back together again. Now, the ark is still not reunited, and that's going to be a longer path to reunion. But God and Israel are working together again. They repent, and God responds. So as we look at this story, the, the, you know, when you bring in stories about things like the ark, it can get really hard to think that we deal with the same God. Right? This is seems like such a different scenario. So how can we, what can we learn about our stage in the story and our relationship with God today? There's a couple of key things that I think we need to remember from this story. First of all, the success of God's people comes from faithfulness, not effort or tactics. Sometimes we think that if I just push a little harder, if I just try harder, if I figure out another way to get there or do this, then it'll work. I just need to push harder and force this thing through. Um, and sometimes we think of that as churches or as the church in America, like if things aren't going the way we think they should, let's just try harder or let's find the right technique. Let's, let's do things the old ways or let's do thing in the, do things in the newest of the new ways. And, and if we tweak the techniques, everything will work out and we forget that the key to success as God's partners in covenant is faithfulness to God. That is what makes things work. We can have the best tactics, we can have the best ideas, we can work the hardest, and it won't matter if we're not being faithful to God. Okay? Now that isn't to say there aren't sometimes times that God is telling you to just buckle down and, and, and do the work, but ultimately the first thing that we look to is our faithfulness to God. I'll give you an example of this in my life. You hear me talk about this a lot, but this was a pretty formative experience for me. I really tried to force through the idea that I was supposed to be a professor. All the way through, uh, through my degrees, I was going to be a professor. I was going to teach pastors. I wasn't going to be a pastor. I was going to teach pastors. And I really tried to force that through. And, and I also had I, also, I knew who I was going to marry at the time it was not Casey. So what I thought at the time and I had a career in mind, and I tried to force it through and force it through, and I didn't actually really stop and ask God and check in with God, is this where I'm supposed to be going? Now, I'm not saying that every time we face obstacles or failure or defeat in our lives that that means we're taking the wrong path. Sometimes we experience defeat or obstacles for other reasons. But we need to ask the question, right? The first instinct should be to go to God and, and take stock. Am, am I going the right way? Right. Instead, we will often throw blame like all these other people are the reason why my life isn't on track and all these other things are the reason why the, I'm facing this failure or this kind of thing. But we need to first start by checking our faithfulness, checking in with God. And that was something that I didn't really do. And here's what I learned and what we also see in this story, that when we try to control God's plan, which is what I was doing, I was saying, no, this is God's plan. That's, that's what it is. I know This is God's plan. And when we try to control God's plan, our relationship with him always suffers. Because what we've done is we've gambled our relationship with God on whether he does this thing that we've told him to do. And one of two things is going to happen. One, it's not in God's will to do that thing. And then that causes us, then then we have to react to the fact that God's not giving me the thing that I've decided he has to give me. So maybe that makes me think that God doesn't love me. Or maybe that makes me think that, um, I don't know, God isn't listening or God isn't there. Or there are all kinds of rabbit holes we can go into when we come to this crisis of God, if God was good and loving, he would give me this thing, he would do this thing, and he's not doing it. And we can go into all kinds of tailspins and all kinds of problems because of that thinking. Now the other side of that might be more dangerous when for at least a certain amount of time, it is God's will to give us the thing that we told him Uh, we like that we decided he wanted like for me seminary was where my plans and god's plans overlapped so for the two years of seminary things were great until i started trying to get into a phd program and then i hit the crisis so sometimes we do end up in places where we think oh i'm getting what i wanted that must mean that god and i are great and he endorses what i'm doing and i should continue down this path and, and not worry about it god and i are always on the right page and that can be a dangerous assumption too because our success comes from faithfulness, and that means we need to be close to God. We need to be checking in with God. That needs to be the key to how we move forward, is our connection with God. Because I will tell you that when, when uh, PhD. programs didn't work out and that relationship didn't work out, I ended up in a pretty dark place. I ended up not going to church and not, being, not just being depressed and, and not having a great uh, spirit, just, not, just being in a very bad one of the worst places of my life. And at a certain point, God used that to turn me around. And that's one of the encouraging things that I get from this story, is that God can use those dark places to get our attention, because it was that dark place that finally turned Israel around. Right? It was that loss of God's presence, that loss of that key part of the plan that turned them around. And God did that for me too. When I was in that place, that was when I finally at a certain point started considering maybe God was leading me in another direction. And God put an opportunity in front of me and I actually prayerfully considered it. I had dismissed out of hand the idea that I was going to be a pastor. And then a little town, a little church, well, the the church in a little town in northeastern Oregon needed a youth pastor. And I said, I could consider helping out there for a year while they get their building project done. And God took me there and I stayed there for three years. And while I was there, I got connected in a way I didn't expect with a woman that became my wife. And man, when you marry, you know, I have never been happier about prayer requests God didn't answer than when I found out who He had in store for me all along, right? I'm so glad that He said no which is say nothing about the any other people but just how amazing that that I love you is what i'm saying and and i can't promise cuz i'm not it's not like i reached that point and then my life was perfect from there on my life is not perfect or anything like that and and i still struggle points when god and i struggle and i struggle with where where god's leading me and that kind of thing but at the point in those times when I am genuinely open to what God is saying, genuinely open to how God is leading, it is amazing how differently my life goes. And it's important for us to remember that because when we are faithful to God, He is eager to fight for us. Now, remember, this, this caveat is very important. He's eager to fight for us according to His plan. It doesn't mean that when I started listening to God, He started giving me exactly the things I've been asking for before. I'm not a professor, Right? He didn't start giving me the things that the he didn't give me the wrong path I tried to go down but he fought the battles to get me to the place where he wanted me to be so God is eager to fight for you God is eager to defeat your Philistines but he's going to do it according to his plan and it needs to be in that moment in that place where we are faithful to him and faithful to his leading now being faithful to God is a lifetime challenge and it has its ups and downs. And there are, there are moments ahead of me, guaranteed, where I'm going to have to relearn being faithful to God and checking back in with him. And I'm going to go off to the side and get pulled back in. But there's one really important thing for us to know that has changed between the story we've been looking at in the Old Testament and today. Because not everything is the same. Because in that time, it was possible for them to genuinely gamble with the presence of God on earth, with the ark. And, and God's presence was tied to that box. And we might be afraid that we can genuinely gamble with our access to God, and like, if I take the wrong step here, I'm actually going to lose access to God. He's going to be fed up, done with me, and that's it. Uh, the ark is gone. And our access to the presence of God comes from a very different place. In fact, the story of, uh, God wrote the story of Christmas. He orchestrated things specifically to make a particular point. Do you know why Jesus was born of a virgin? Matthew tells us all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. The miraculous birth of Jesus was a sign to make it clear to us that God is with us, not because of a box, not because of a tent, not because of a priesthood, but because of a baby boy that was born 2,000 years ago and became a man and a prophet and a savior and a king and died on a cross for us and was risen back to life and offers that life to us today. The birth of Jesus means that the presence of God is available to us forever, and that is the certainty that we have, that when we depart from that path, when we need to get back to God, that God is there waiting for us because he never left. Because his presence is here. So as we close, I'm going to ask you to consider where, where are you at in that path? Do you need to, to reconnect with God? Know that he is there and he is not going anywhere. And God may be calling you to a next step. One of those steps that you can take is to give your life to Jesus. Today is the best day for you to do that, to to enter into that relationship for the very first time. God is eagerly waiting you to decide to be in his people, to give your life to him. And if he is putting that on your heart, do it today. If you're here, you can come forward during our final song. You can talk with a minister after the service. If you're online, you get in touch with us. Talk to a Christian that you trust Connect with someone who can walk you through that. If you're looking for a church community to be a part of, we encourage you to sign up for a Connect class. Actually, today, you can sign up for a future one, but we also have a Connect class after the service today. You can just show up. At 12.30, we'll have sandwiches, and you can come and find out more about who we are as a church, what we do, and how you can be a part of it. And finally, on your Connect card, you'll also see a couple other opportunities. To join a small group, which is how we get together and do this journey of life together, and support each other. You can also join a service team, which is how we we serve our God by serving others, and we give back because he's been so generous with us. And if you want to join any one of those teams, mark that on your Connect card before you drop it in the receptacle. So we encourage you to consider what is the next step that God is asking you to make today as we stand and sing.